This is Paul Vachure with the Conversion Science Network podcast. And today I'm with one of the, the regular visitors to our summer school here in Barcelona, um, Jerry Haslow. And Jerry is, is with us now, so he's visiting Barcelona, uh, and he talked about his, his recent work on the, on the cerebellum. And um, so Jerry, one, one thing, maybe as an introduction, but what I always found fascinating in, in your case is that sort of you moved from psychology and philosophy into not just neuroscience, but a very sort of hardcore version of, of neuroscience, right? So, so how, do you, how do you see that transition for yourself? Well, I wanted, when I studied psychology, I was in a department that was mainly Freudian, and, and I wanted to study psychology from a more scientific point of view. And I looked at various departments and, and laboratories, and I found that there was a group in my hometown in Lund uh, working on the cerebellum. They were doing things that I found extremely boring. They were looking at uh, uh, pathways <coughs> through the spinal cord up to the cerebellum, uh, and I found that very, very boring since I was interested in, in uh, learning and memory and stuff like that, physiological psychology. But <clears throat> the quality of the research was extremely good, and, and I've come to the view that this is really, really crucial for not probably most of science. The, the quality of the research, the when things are done in a careful, precise, painstaking, systematic way, this is much more important than than uh, working in in trendy subjects and, and following fashion and so on. Mm -hmm. So even though I found it boring, I found that the quality of the research being done in that department was just so good. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt that this these guys know what they're doing. This is what I I want to learn. Right. So I I uh, started working in the uh, on the cerebellum with Carl Fredrik Eckerot, Gert Andersson, and a few others. Uh, just to learn the techniques and and to uh, try and emulate their way of thinking, their their carefulness and, and uh, the systematic way they were doing research. And then, just by luck, it turned out that a certain form of associative memory, Pavlovian conditioning, actually occurred in the cerebellum. So, for me, that was just fantastic because it meant that I could utilize my knowledge of cerebellar physiology and address uh, a task that I felt was, was also very interesting, uh, namely the formation of associative memory. So that's how I ended up mm -hmm. uh, doing work on the cerebellum on Pavlovian eye-blink right. conditioning. So that, that's basically what you've been doing for the last 25 years. Exactly. Uh -huh. And it's been extremely difficult. We've, we've spent a lot of time trying to, to create uh, uh, an experimental setup that is workable, uh, there are many there are many constraints when you do research. You have the ethical constraints, for instance. You cannot do this on any kind of animal. You cannot do it with any kind of anesthetics and, and so on. Uh, but we found a way to to solve these problems. But it's it's taken, I would say, it, it took more than 15 years to almost 20 years to make the preparation really workable. Mm -hmm. Now, finally, results are pouring in. Right. It's been a, a very long, uh, a very long uh, travel to get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, but so, how do you map Pavlovian conditioning onto the brain, and in particular onto the cerebellum? How, how, how is that? What's the relationship there? Well, 
Pavlovian conditioning is a very general phenomenon. Uh, there are many response systems in which you can get it. I mean, Pavlov used autonomic conditioning. He showed how you, you could train dogs to salivate when they heard a sound uh, by pairing the sound with food in the dog's mouth. Uh, we can also use the same learning paradigm to, how should I put it, to, um, to look at uh, how certain immune responses occur, uh, cognitive aspects of learning, how your heart rate changes when you are told something frightening, how asthmatic patients can get asthmatic attacks when they look at f pictures of flowers or f smell flowers and, and things like that. There are many, many, many applications to this, and we are only studying one of them, namely eye-blink conditioning, which mm -hmm. is a motor response. We know that this is in the cerebellum, but probably the other forms of conditioning or many of the other forms of conditioning uh, involve other parts of the brain. But it's a very simple and very basic form of learning. There is the, the Nobel Prize winner, Peter Medawar, once wrote uh, a, a collection of essays called The Art of the Soluble. Mm -hmm. And by that he meant that scientists should not only address the important problems, they should also <laughs> choose problems that are really soluble. Mm -hmm. uh, and that often means you should start with the simple problems mm -hmm. and wait with the, the, right. the really huge mm -hmm. task like explaining cognition and consciousness mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Okay, but now um, in, in Pavlovian conditioning, we actually have a very reduced setup, right? You just have, you're talking about two kinds of stimuli Yes. And in the end, one kind of response you're going yeah, to get out of yeah. the system, right? So, so how do you do you? And these are also very simple responses. They're right. stereotyped mm -hmm. responses. Exactly. Mm. So, how do you map that very reduced learning system now from the behavioral perspective onto the neural substrate, right? So, how does something like this conditioned stimulus, this initially neutral stimulus, now map onto this preparation you developed? Or how do you map your unconditioned stimulus onto that system, and so on? I'm not. I'm not sure what you mean by how do I uh, mapping. Well, how do I? You map? have a functional <laughs> relationship. You know yeah. that if you present this conditioned stimulus mm. paired with an unconditioned stimulus, you will be able to trigger conditioned response yes. over time. Yeah. So that means you have to now identify the pathways that exactly. actually yes. that, yes. that transduce this information yeah. to the brain. Yeah. But we know that we can. In our case, we map it onto the cerebellum, and, and there's a lot of experimental work before us uh, where people have showed you can get these in animals that have no forebrain. You can remove a, a huge part of the brain and still get conditioning. Uh, we have developed this into a preparation where we, uh, we uh, remove most of the brain, all the parts of the brain that, that maintain cognitive function and consciousness and so on are removed. And we have the cerebellum and the brainstem left intact. We can still get conditioning. And it seems to follow basically the same rules that, mm -hmm. the, that you find in the intact animal. It takes roughly the same t amount of time and training to, to acquire the response. Um, they, it, they extinguish in the same way and so on. So mm -hmm. it looks very, very similar. And then we have try to identify precisely which cells in the cerebellum learn this. And we show that these cells, they have particular properties, they have particular input characteristics and so on. So we can, within a few tens of a microns, <laughs> tens of microns, we can, we can localize the cells that, that learn this mm -hmm. task. And we can record from precisely those cells. And we can, the findings we have, 
can account for almost everything you find in the behavior. Mm-hmm. So we have cellular responses, responses in the particular group of Purkinje cells in the cerebellar cortex. They have the temporal properties of the behavior. They respond in the same way when you change various conditions uh, during training. Uh, and that means that we, we know within a very, very, very narrow area, mm-hmm. a very small area, where the learning <coughs> takes place. So how do these cells learn? I mean, on, on these cells we have convergence. Pavlov already talked about mm-hmm. looking for convergence mm-hmm. to find the side of the engram or the, the memory trace. Mm-hmm. So the condition stimulus information comes up to this Purkinje cell through the parallel fibers, mm-hmm. the resident granule cells. This might tell you something about the world. Now we have our climbing fiber coming in, mm. so we have convergence on this Purkinje cell. Mm. So you could argue, oh, look, that seems a fairly trivial setup to learn an association, right? Well, actually, the, the Purkinje cells are ideally suited to make associative connections. They are unique in the nervous system in the degree of convergence of inputs. One Purkinje cell can receive several hundred thousand <clears throat> different inputs from the so-called parallel fibers. So a single Purkinje cell will, will have be contacted by maybe a quarter of a million, maybe half a million parallel fibers. Uh, And the parallel fibers will signal everything that happens to the organism. Mm -hmm. All the sensory systems project via the parallel fibers of the Purkinje cell. Also, everything that happens in in the the brain, when you think about things, when you plan ahead, when you imagine you're seeing things, all of that information is also sent to the via the parallel fibers to the Purkinje cells. Mm-hmm. So this is a perfect system for generating associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not, once you've seen the, this degree of convergence, it's not a surprise that this is where the associative learning mm-hmm. takes place. Well, but it's, it seems a very special kind of associative learning because it's not that you just associate any idea with any other idea to, you, to use a more Jungian interpretation. Mm-hmm but you seem to associate in a very convergent fashion a large st- set of possible states onto one output state. Yeah. Right. So it's not just any form of associative learning, but it's a very specific kind of associative learning. Yes, but you have many output channels also. I mean, <coughs> groups, small groups of Purkinje cells project to their own targets. Most of them project to muscles, but there are also Purkinje cells projecting to the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. and to the parts of the brain that we believe are the centers of cognitive, various cognitive functions. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> and since all these Purkinje cells projecting to small groups of muscles or the areas of the cognitive parts mm-hmm. of, the, of the forebrain, uh, they all receive this convergent input from, from all the other mm-hmm. systems. In the, uh, But what do you then see as the, the, the output unit? Because in, some, in the eye blink conditioning case, which is a standard paradigm that you also have have pursued uh, vigorously, the output is a discrete movement in the end. Yes. Right? So now you also say that, but other Purkinje cells would indirectly project towards the frontal cortex. Yes. So what's now this output unit of this well, system? Well, if, if you go, some some of the projection from the cerebellum goes to the, the primary motor cortex. Mm-hmm. And there you have... Uh, pyramidal cells projecting also to elementary movements or, or small groups of muscles. So the, that output pathway is rather similar to what we're looking mm-hmm. at in eye-blink conditioning. But then as you go more forward in the forebrain, you will reach areas that, that control more 
global aspects of actions. You should perhaps mm-hmm. shouldn't even call them movements because mm-hmm. they are actions in in a more abstract right. sense. So the more rostral, the more forward you come, the more complex the movement will be controlled by that area. And and when you come, suppose that I, I said that <clears throat> I want to, to to draw a triangle, then on my primary motor cortex there will be commands for holding the pen mm-hmm. <laughs> and moving your arm in a certain direction. If you go a little bit forward, you will have a command signal controlling, let's say, draw a horizontal line. And if you go even further forward than that, you will have more global commands like mm-hmm. drawing a triangle or even mm-hmm. drawing a house or something like that. And the more forward you, you go, the more global will the commands be, the mm-hmm. more abstract will they be, or the more abstract will the actions be that are mm-hmm. controlled from that area. So it looks as if the cerebellum can control not only the, the sort of the fine detailed parts of a movement like squeeze the pen <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to, to hold it, but also more global actions like draw a triangle or things mm-hmm. like that. But would that not mean that, like in the in the eye-blink conditioning case, you were, dis- you were describing the output of the system as groups of muscles, mm. but it actually is, it's, it's, it, this projection is only indirectly targeting these muscles because it hits, a, it hits brainstem motor nuclei. So also there wouldn't be fair to say that you control an action as opposed to groups of muscles? Well, you might, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I also suppose that if you you take eye-blink conditioning, which is in some ways a special case, but but it will activate the facial nucleus Mm -hmm. and send signals out of the eyelid. If you're looking at other forms in in a rabbit, for instance, it's retraction of the eyeball and not only the eyelid and so on. But but in any case, the... uh, the, the facial nucleus will not only respond then to change in its input signals, input signals controlling the movement of the eyelid, there must be other mechanisms controlling, let's say, the amplitude of the movement. Mm-hmm. That could also be the cerebellum in a different part of the cerebellum. Uh, and maybe that will also be controlled by signals coming from the forebrain, like in this particular situation, it's not very good, good to close your eyes because you need to, um, to have a look at the uh, uh, dangerous environment you're, uh, you're being in at the moment, mm-hmm. things like that. So, of course, in a certain sense, the facial nucleus will have to integrate or compromise between signals coming from the cerebellum but also coming from other parts of the brain and from the periphery. Mm-hmm. But now, so, so now we, we have the whole setup, right? We have sort of are conditioned stimuli coming in. This is basically all possible states of the world or internal states of my brain that come in via the pons over these parallel fibers. I have these climbing fibers that are much more specifically targeting these Purkinje cells, mm. linked often to very specific events on the body, mm. like unconditioned stimuli, painful stimuli, and noxious stimuli, and so on. And now we have this output pathway, which is which is a strong divergent pathway or convergent pathway again onto motor nuclei or onto frontal areas of, mm. of the brain. Okay, so so now now you could argue well. And indeed, because of this, this very almost clean and also what people call crystalline design of this circuit, its its operations, or some people like to call this its computations, might be fairly trivial. So there have been models of this already by Marin, Albus, and Ito since you know, the 70s and early 80s. And 
so you could argue, okay, but, but given this anatomical arrangement and given this physiology, the computational principles appear clear because you just learn to trigger this response. You have to bridge some sort of little time interval between the onset of one mm-hmm. stimulus and the other. So what's really the problem of this system? Why is it so difficult to understand how this really works? Where are the I problems coming in? I don't think it is very difficult. Okay. I think <laughs> yeah, but still, you're performing experiments every day, so apparently yes, there are yeah, we're trying problems. to. So, I mean, we're trying to sort out many of the details, but mm-hmm. I think that in the, what some of the basic stuff we we understand pretty well now. We we do. I think we do understand that that all the sensory information is transmitted via the mossy fiber and the parallel mm-hmm. fibers of the Purkinje cells. The climbing fibers provide a teaching signal to to change the the circuitry. The Purkinje cell has the ability to output to generate ti- well timed outputs that mm-hmm. control behavior. I think this is now pretty clear. The uh, a, a lot of the controversy surrounding the cerebellum is that a lot of people who work, perhaps those who are working on different setups. Uh, don't accept the answers that we now uh, that that I claim are the mm-hmm. right ones, but there's an, another complication, and that is that the cerebellum, as you said, has a crystalline structure. It looks very similar throughout the cerebellar cortex, mm-hmm. wherever you are in the cerebellum, and that has fostered the assumption that the cerebellum works in the same way in mm-hmm. in all different parts. However, it is known and has been for some time that. There are biochemical differences between different zones in the cerebellum, and those biochemical differences must correspond to some sort of functional difference. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of difference? Well, if would you could, stand out, I'm not sure what they are, mm-hmm. uh, and this has not been investigated because almost all the in vitro work has been done in the vermis. Mm-hmm. People have taken out slices from the vermis and put them in a dish and and tried to explore mm-hmm. learning properties and so on. But a large part of the cerebellum have never been subjected to that kind of analysis. And if you look at what different parts of the cerebellum do, it's not difficult to envisage that they might learn quite different things mm-hmm. and respond in, in different ways. Uh, <clears throat> this is very speculative on my part, but but... If you take, for instance, a medial part of the cerebellum that controls controls posture and axial musculature, uh, it's difficult to see that the cerebellum would would be very useful if it only produced a kind of phasic, fairly short latency and very short-lasting movements that are generated by a more lateral area that generates eye blink. Mm -hmm. The precondition cell controlling eye blink, you would expect it to generate a, a short-lasting, fast movement or signal. But if you go to the part of the vermis controlling posture, you wouldn't want you want someone to be able to stand mm-hmm. still for a while, and it's not useful then to generate very very short-lasting mm-hmm. fast movements. So my guess is that you would find that those parts of the cerebellum mm-hmm. work in a slightly different way. They may have very different temporal properties. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and but look, you could also argue that that transformation is performed in these downstream brainstem nuclei that they sort of perform some sort of temporal matching of these output signals yes, to the properties yeah. of the periphery. Yes, you can. But your original question was, why has it been, why has it been so difficult yeah. to agree exactly. on how the cerebellum works? Mm-hmm. And one uh, one guess that I have is that it has always been assumed that the cerebellum works in the same way mm-hmm. everywhere, but people working on eye blink conditioning work in one part of the cerebellum. Those who work on 
in vitro mm-hmm. on slices work mm-hmm. in a different part of the cerebellum and those working on the other main experimental paradigm, namely the adaptation of the vestibulo-ocular mm-hmm. reflex, they work in a third area of the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. And maybe the properties of the cerebellum are different in mm-hmm. all these areas. But in that these... could also be one reason mm-hmm. why there has been so why it's been so difficult to reach but agreement. But these three paradigms, how much of the cerebellum do they really cover? Well, they cover only a small part of the cerebellum. Right, exactly. We are working in the intermediate part known as the C3 zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slice people work on mainly on the A zone. Maybe they get some B zone. I don't know, mm-hmm. depending on how careful they are. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the the ocular reflex people are working on the on the flocculus, a, mm-hmm. a very old part of the cerebellum. And it it could be that there are there are significant differences mm-hmm. between these areas. So in total, this is not more than ten percent, I would guess. No, less than that. Less. Okay, yeah. I was being mm-hmm. generous. Yeah. But. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. But so, but the, so the, the the problem is that if you say okay, it might not be a uniformly operating learning system. Mm. Um, do you have any physiological or direct anatomical evidence for that, or is it only in in terms of functional considerations? Well, it's functional considerations coupled with the fact that there, we know that there are biochemical differences. Okay. Uh, People working with anatomical techniques have found that that there are some some clear chemical differences between different parts mm-hmm. of the cerebellum. One of the most well known is the zebrin bands, uh, which correspond to uh, uh, an enzyme called aldolase, mm-hmm. which is important for uh, basic metabolism of the cells. And um, it it's very difficult to understand why should there be bands of Purkinje cells with different levels of aldolase. Mm-hmm. Um, if it doesn't correspond to some sort of functional difference right. between them, hmm. yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. So, but then, but so you said earlier, which, which I liked actually, you said, okay, I know how this system works, but they don't want to listen. So, so how does this system then work when we when we take the eye blink conditioning example, right? So here comes the sound, and a bit later comes the air puff to the cornea. Well, of course, there are, what's happening in this system now? We don't know a lot about the details here, but what we no, know no, but, is but that, sketch that it the, out. Yeah, the, the Purkinje cell controlling the eyelid is only a, a small fraction of the Purkinje cells, but it's mm-hmm. a, a distinct group of Purkinje cells. They will receive input from tones and light and, and skin pressure and everything that happens to the organism all the time. But now and then, uh, a certain stimulus like a tone will occur and be followed by some kind of stimulus to the eye, mm-hmm. like air on the cornea or an insect um, irritating the skin around the eye or, or something like that. And that will produce a, a signal in a particular for in a particular pathway known as the climbing fibers going up to the same Purkinje cells. And the, that climbing fiber in, impulse will change the synapses between the parallel fibers and the Purkinje cells. Mm-hmm. And it will only change those parallel fibers that were just active mm-hmm. at the time we're considering. And those happen to be tone. So the synapses between the tone-carrying uh, signal and the climbing fiber input, those synapses will be changed by the climbing fiber input. Mm-hmm. And that will make the Purkinje cell more likely the next time this happened to generate an output signal in response to the tone. Mm-hmm before the climbing fiber, before right. the, the corneal mm-hmm. or eye stimulation. But how, how does the Purkinje cell then trigger that response? That is totally unknown. Okay. 
and a very controversial. Okay. Yeah. How come? What's the difficulty there? Well, one difficulty is to account for the timing. If the the dominant idea in the, the neurobiology of learning mm-hmm. has been for many decades, I would say, the idea that you can change the strength of a synapse. Mm-hmm. Synapses can be depressed or they can be potentiated. And the terms long-term depression and long-term potentiation are usually used to, to designate these two forms of learning. And this has been the standard assumption in not only cerebe- the cerebellum, but in, in all ideas about learning in, in the brain. Mm-hmm. The difficulty has been that the learned eye blink the conditioned eye blink is well timed. It reaches if if you have a particular interval between the onset of the tone and the onset of the air puff, like 300 milliseconds or 500 milliseconds, the Purkinje cell response is adaptively timed to mm. the interval between these two stimuli that occur during training. And how can you account for the delay if the Purkinje cell in one, if you use 300 milliseconds, the, the Purkinje cell will start firing or, or ch- change its firing early and it will reach a maximum amplitude at roughly the time when the unconditioned stimulus or the air puff comes on. If you use 500 milliseconds instead, the, <coughs> the response will be delayed mm-hmm. and adapted to the 500 millisecond interval. Now, how can you account for a timed response if you have only increases or decreases in stimulus strength. Mm-hmm. The Just changing the strength of the response to the, the, the tone signal could explain why the Purkinje cell responds to tone, but it doesn't explain how the, that response can be delayed by a couple of hundred mm-hmm. milliseconds or so. Right. So this has been the main problem, that how do you account mm-hmm. for the timing? Mm-hmm. And there have been many ideas about how this could be achieved. For instance, you could have delays in the input signal. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been an idea that goes back many decades. It's mm-hmm. called tapped delay lines. And the idea was that if you had a delay, let's say, in the mossy fibers going up to the cerebellum or a delays in the granule cells and parallel fiber signal in the Purkinje cells, then you could have a, a synaptic change only between those parallel fibers that, that had the right delay mm-hmm. so that the signals would coincide with the input coming through the climbing fibers from the air puff. And that would give you an automatic way of timing because mm-hmm. then only those parallel fibers would, would sure. respond after learning. And that would give you automatic mm-hmm. timing. We have in Lund conducted experiments suggesting that there are no such delays in mm-hmm. the input signals. And even if we circumvent them by stimulating, well, a few years ago, we, we tried to stimulate the mossy fibers and we got well-timed responses showing that it couldn't be delays in the mossy mm-hmm. fibers. Uh, because we had delays after the mossy fibers. So then recently we have stimulated the parallel fibers instead, and we still get nicely timed responses, Mm -hmm. suggesting that it cannot be delays in the parallel fibers. Mm -hmm. It has to be something closer to the Purkinje cell, either cortical interneurons or the Purkinje cells themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, but but what you're you're invalidating with, with these experiments is the notion of a tap delay line, which would be that you have one spike basically traveling through this parallel fiber that signals mm-hmm. well the, the interstimulus interval is 100 milliseconds and mm-hmm. it's on that one spike that you have to learn, right? Mm-hmm. But you cannot exclude the possibility that you have a more continuous um, 
a fluctuating response on these parallel fibers that sort of represents interstitial this is also this is also a problem for the ltd ltp story that that if you yes when you provide a tone signal uh, the the mossy fibers and the parallel fibers will go on firing throughout the whole period that mm-hmm. you have the tone and you can get if the tone continues well after the air puff the tone can continue several hundred milliseconds mm-hmm. after the air puff but that doesn't produce a continuous response. The response mm-hmm. goes on at a certain time, but it also goes off at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if the, the, the condition stimulus continues for many hundreds of milliseconds, right. the response still goes off at the right mm-hmm. time. But wait, I could argue that that is then accomplished by the climbing fiber signal. Yes, but the same thing happens uh, or if you give a, a CS alone or tone alone mm-hmm. trial. The, the same thing happens. The, the response goes off at the time when the climbing fiber response usually comes in. Oh, okay. So it doesn't really matter. And and also you can elicit the response with a, a brief... If you train with several hundred millisecond tone, you can still elicit the condition response with just 10 milliseconds mm-hmm. uh, condition stimulus. Okay. So it's it looks mm-hmm. as if it's only the initial part of the stimulus that matters from the learning mm-hmm. point of view. Right. So okay, so this 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 whole topic of how is the interstimulus interval represented so that you can learn it. This is one yeah. problem, mm-hmm. right? And now you sketch some scenarios how we can mm-hmm. think about mm-hmm. this. But the other another issue might be how you you transform this yeah but uh, i have to interrupt here yeah please the, the if you if you have the tone and the tone goes on for many hundreds of milliseconds then there will be parallel fiber signals coming throughout this whole period and that means that the first parallel fiber signals they will be matched with say if you have an interval of 300 milliseconds they will be followed after 300 milliseconds by the complex spike from the climbing mm-hmm. fibers in the air puff but if they can continue mm-hmm. then there will be some parallel fiber signals will be followed at a shorter interval by the climbing fiber input mm-hmm. and some will be followed even at an even yet shorter mm-hmm. period and some will even coincide with the the unconditioned stimulus mm-hmm. so this also creates a problem from the for the idea that you just have this this um, long-term depression of synaptic strength. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but so, so one riddle, if you want, still in in the system is okay. Where does the trace reside yes. that, that correlates or that corresponds yeah, to yeah. the stimulus interval? Yeah. Right. So this is one problem. Yeah. And indeed, I think your 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 most recent experiments shed really an interesting light on that. But but another question I, I think that's unresolved is really how do you now transform changes in Purkinje cell firing mm-hmm. to actually triggering this eye blink? Because yes. it's not that this Purkinje cell is directly driving this skeletal muscle system, right? It has to go through a number of, of steps. Moreover, the modulation might be inhibitory. So you have a sign reversal problem. So how, how do we map now changes in Purkinje cell responses to actually triggering that that I blink. Well, we know that Purkinje cells are inhibitory, and uh, they inhibit the cerebellar nuclei, and they are tonically active. Uh, that means that if a Purkinje cell that is tonically active uh, has a certain stand uh, at a pretty high rate, at I a may pretty add, high right? rate, yeah, uh, tens of, of impulses per second, mm-hmm. even hundreds of imp- hundreds of impulses per second, and the nuclei to which they project also have a spontaneous background mm-hmm. activity. So in order to generate an excitatory output, the Purkinje cell has to stop its firing. Mm-hmm. And that is what, what it actually does. Uh, when, when you apply a conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning protocol to the Purkinje cell, 
it will respond with a pause mm -hmm. to the input signal. Uh, and that pause means that the Purkinje cell, which is inhibitory, will stop inhibiting the nuclei. That means the nuclei will be excited and will generate an excitatory signal. Who excites, who excites the nucleus? What excites the nucleus? Nothing has to excite the nucleus. Okay. This was uh, previously considered a problem, mm -hmm. but it's now known that the, the nuclei have an intrinsic mechanism for mm -hmm. generating a background activity, so nothing really has to excite So it's them. a form of rebound, a rebound excitation? You don't need that either. Okay. If the Purkinje cell stops firing, mm -hmm. you will you uh, stops inhibiting the deep nuclei. Yep. They will immediately increase their firing rate. So that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. There there may be problems, and this of course has to be addressed in in a future physiology. Uh, uh, how is this transformation from the inhibitory Purkinje cell signal to the nuclei, to the red nucleus, to the mm -hmm. facial nucleus? Right. What can, how is the, this transformation, mm -hmm. what does it look like? Is it linear or is it something else? And this, of course, we don't yet know. Uh, right. And this has to be found out. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, of course, interesting aspects because the system also has to regulate the amplitude, mm -hmm. the blink has to have... The, the eyelid movement has to have the right force. Right. If the eye is a little bit dry, for instance, mm -hmm. it will need a larger force mm -hmm. and so on. So that has to be regulated also. And that could well be downstream from the Purkinje cells. Mm -hmm. It could be in the nuclei, uh, cerebellar nuclei. It could right. even be learned in the cerebellar mm -hmm. nuclei. We, we, we don't know. Okay. But now there, there's another, another puzzling component of this story, which is that these deep nuclei. So now we have an idea of how we transform the, the pause in the Purkinje cell firing into triggering an action of the eyelid. Mm. But these deep nuclear cells also receive a collateral input from the pons, right? Well, so does it no. play any role of, of, of significance? I don't think so. Okay. Actually, this has been a highly controversial subject. Mm -hmm. the, the nuclei do receive some osteofibro collaterals from some sources, mm -hmm. uh, but it's highly questionable if they do so from the pontine uh, nuclei and from the, from the mossy fibers arising in the pons. Mm -hmm. There have been some claims that they do. Other people have claimed they do not. Mm -hmm. And in any case, the, the number of such collaterals is likely to be very, very small compared to the convergence of input you have in the cerebellar cortex mm -hmm. sure. uh, with a quarter of a million parallel fibers mm -hmm. to a single Purkinje cell. So, so how many mossy fibers would collateral to the deep nucleus, you think? I don't know. I mean, okay. some people have questioned that there were any at all. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my guess is it, would, it, would, it wouldn't be near, I mean, it, it would be totally different order of magnitude mm -hmm. uh, from what you have okay. in the quarter. So we it wouldn't be nearly now. enough right. to, to explain associative learning. Okay. But it might be, it might be enough to to explain, for instance, uh, a consistent modulation of reflex strength. Exactly right. Yeah. So if you had mossy fibrous collateral, perhaps not from the pons, but from somewhere else, regulating, let's say, the background firing rate mm -hmm. of the deep nuclei, that could mean that the eyelid response, the eye blink amplitude, could be stronger or weaker. And, right. and that mm. kind of learning could And this well is a relevant issue, right? Because what you're conditioning is the amplitude time course of the response. Yes. And the Purkinje cells tell us how we can get the timing, but yeah. not this amplitude modulation, precisely, right? Precisely. And in other, in other areas, for instance, in, in uh, the vestibular ocular reflex, the Purkinje cell, or, or the, sorry, the, the cerebellum does uh, modulate the amplitude of a reflex. Mm -hmm. And this has also been 
a view, if you go back decades, uh, this has been a view of what the cerebellum does with all our spinal reflexes, that they modulate the reflex uh, gain. Mm -hmm. right. So that, that the strength of the reflex, it always has to be adapted. Mm -hmm. When the body grows, your muscle strength changes, mm -hmm. the mechanical properties um, uh, changes all the time. So you cannot, these things cannot be inborn. They have to be subject to modulation right. as we grow and as we train, as mm -hmm. our muscles become stronger, and then as we grow older, as the muscles become weaker, mm -hmm. they will always have to adapt to this. Right. So you need some kind of adaptation of reflex mm -hmm. gain. Or even you could argue, uh, as soon as we start to use tools, for instance, that if you talk about posture, postural yeah. control yeah. with tools, or right then, then yes. you have to adapt very rapidly to that. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. But now, so okay, so so let's say we, we're not going to worry too much about these mostly fiber collaterals. But another aspect of this of this downward pathway towards the the, the, the action is that it, in, it also has a collateral from the deep nucleus back to the inferior olive, which seems puzzling, right? And you actually have been investigating this this specific aspect of the mm. whole circuit quite mm. a bit, because over the inferior olive, we have, if you want, our error signal coming in that tells you, okay, you just got a shock mm. or you just got an air puff, something bad mm. happened to you. But now in itself, these inferior olive neurons receive an inhibitory input from the deep nucleus, which we are triggering when we're saying, okay, close your eyelid now. Mm. So what's the role? How do you see the the role of that, of that connection, of that well, link. we th we think that this is a negative feedback pathway for controlling learning, the amplitude of the learning. Uh, this the was amplitude of learning? The amplitude of the learned response. Okay. Um, this was very puzzling initially. We we discovered this by chance that this pathway was inhibitory. It was always believed to be excitatory. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's it's when it's inhibitory, it's very difficult because bacchinicels are also inhibitory, and the the climbing fibers excitatory, the net effect would be a positive feedback system, mm -hmm. which is unbiological and, and can never be stable. And well, right. there are all sorts of problems with that. But if and this, so this looked as a problem when it was thought that the effect of the climbing fibers was the, the excitatory, providing excitatory mm -hmm. input to the Purkinje cells. But if the Purkinje, if the climbing fiber induces a weakening of the uh, parallel fiber to Purkinje cell synapses, or if they produce post responses in the Purkinje cell, then it becomes a negative feedback pathway. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because it might control learning. So the idea that we have tried to pursue has been that when the animal, when, when the cerebellum learns to produce an excitatory output signal, uh, generating a learned movement like an eye blink, it will at the same time send a signal to the inferior olive mm -hmm. that is inhibitory and that <coughs> weakens or turns off the learning, the teaching signal coming mm -hmm. from the olive. So it means that when the learning has reached a certain level, you turn off the learning machinery. Mm -hmm. So you would pre prevent a kind of overlearning. And that in itself might not seem to be so important, but it does have important consequences. And, and one of them is that if the subject learns to respond to a certain stimulus, like a light, and then, or say, uh, sorry, li like a tone, and then you add, so suppose you learn to blink to a tone. So each time you hear the tone, you blink nicely, a conditioned blink. 
Then you add a light mm -hmm. on every trial and pair the light with the tone and the air puff. If you then test learning to the light afterwards, you will find that the subject hasn't learned. Now that makes biological sense because why should it learn to respond to the light when you already have the tone? Mm -hmm. And the tone enables you to avoid the air puff uh, without paying any attention to the light. So it would be just a waste of circuitry, a waste of energy and so on to also learn to respond to the light. Mm -hmm. But this system, this mechanism will do precisely that because whenever you have the tone and the air puff, the, the subject generates the condition blink an output signal, you turn off the learning mechanism. So when the light comes on, the subject doesn't learn anymore. It has already learned to respond mm -hmm. to the tone, so it doesn't need the learning machinery anymore. And it will prevent the animal from forming associations that are, that are of no use. But they're like redundant. Yeah, exactly, redundant, they're redundant. Right. Right. Redundant but then, information. But the interesting implication of that is that this learning machine has set itself up to never be a perfect learner because as soon as you start to then block this teaching signal of the, the, the climbing fiber signal, you are creating conditions for extinction. Yes. Right. So in some sense, the learning plateau is now defined by, by let's say, the correct prediction, then mm. setting in motion extinction that forces you again then to learn because you start to make mistakes, yeah. right? My well, my view is that if, if you have if you have a, uh, a thermostat system, mm -hmm. uh, the the system will when the when the the temperature increases, it will turn off the heating. The heating temperature go down, the heating will be turned on, and you will have an oscillation around right. a set point. Mm -hmm. And I guess that the same thing happens here that you have a set point. And you 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 reach some kind of equilibrium, and mm -hmm. you get a little bit of extinction, and that suffices to turn on the learning, the teaching machinery, and, and you will learn, and you will oscillate mm -hmm. around uh, a certain certain right. level. Okay, but it also means it's always testing the yes. hypothesis yeah. it's predicting, right? Yeah. In, by by just this this if you want non-specific extinction that it mm. imposes upon itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But now another aspect of this circuit is that in turn the inferior olive also projects back to the deep nucleus yeah right is that of any significance in this in this learning perspective i just don't know my mm. guess is that you you can have some other form of learning in the nuclei and, and maybe those are also mm -hmm. elicited uh, by the uh, by the uh, this these collaterals i don't know another possibility is that an excitation when, when the teaching signal to Burkindia cell will cause the Burkindia cell to fire mm -hmm. and provide an inhibitory signal down to the nucleus. And maybe that inhibitory signal interferes with the normal movement. Mm -hmm. So if you have an, a signal coming via the collateral, it would help to cancel mm -hmm. that meaningless inhibitory signal coming from the Burkindia cell. Right. I don't know. Mm -hmm. This is pure speculation. Right. But on the other hand, what is intriguing about this is that the inferior olive has its own spontaneous activity, mm. right? Which is about one hertz to 10 hertz, mm. depends who you talk to. Um, but now, so it's not the case that, that you only have climbing fiber activity when you actually have this unconditioned stimulus. Mm. It's actually interspersed with a spontaneous level of activity. Yes, and, and it, it looks as if the, the climbing fiber input not only teaches the Purkinje cell to respond to particular specific stimulus, 
it also regulates the background firing rate of the Burkindi sole. Mm-hmm. So the, normally the, the, the olive will fire with around one hertz or so. If you increase that to just over two hertz, you will silence the background firing of the Burkindi cell. It will mm. be totally silent. And if you reduce the background firing rate of the olive down to half a hertz or zero, after half a minute or so, the Burkindi cell will start firing with very high increased, uh, very increased rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but when that happens, when, when the Burkindi cell background firing goes up, it will suppress the nucleus, which will reduce the inhibitory signal to the olive, which mm-hmm. will increase the background firing rate of the olive, and that will de- depress the Purkinje mm-hmm. cell background firing rate. So you have a negative feedback system not only for controlling learning, mm-hmm. you'll also have a, a negative feedback system for controlling the background firing rate of the Purkinje right. cell. But now, in some of the therefore you could argue that maybe, if you think about eye-blink conditioning, it's actually a very tiny perturbation Mm. on the intrinsic dynamics of this system. Mm. So maybe this learning system is just trying to keep, let's say the Purkinje cells are just trying to keep the inferior olive at some optimal level of activity, mm. right? And it tries to regulate it up and down by regulating the, the deep nucleus, essentially. Right, so it's really yeah. homeostatic yeah. negative this, feedback. This makes it very difficult to theorize about it because it's it's not clear to me what is regulating what. Okay. Is it the Purkinje cells that are regulating the olive, or is mm-hmm. it the olive that regulating the Purkinje cells? Well, it would it would basically mean that if you have, let's say, this closed loop homeostatic uh, system that, that where the Purkinje cells are regulating the inhibition of a deep nucleus, so you in turn regulate the, the inhibition onto the inferior olive so you can mm. keep it at a fixed rate, mm. somewhere between 1 to 10 hertz. Now, if I have an, a climbing fiber of an unconditioned stimulus coming in, I start to speed up my inferior olive, mm. right? So that would say, okay, now I have to sort of start to increase my inhibition to the inferior olive to bring it back to this baseline mm. that I want to keep it at, you see? So mm. uh, this might be, a, uh, in that context, you could also account for classical conditioning, but then what the learning system is still trying to do is keep this inferior olive neurons at the right uh, level of firing, mm. and it doesn't act, and that you get an eye blink associated with it is something you get for free. Mm. Others, how this this system is wired up, so the the emphasis of the learning system is on the controlling the inferior olive as opposed to controlling the periphery. Mm-hmm. Is that reasonable? Well, it's certainly consistent with mm-hmm. what we know, and uh, I just don't know. I find this ve- I find this a very difficult subject to speculate on. <laughs> okay, on. it has puzzled me for a long time mm-hmm. and confused okay. me. Right. So, 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 but we have an idea now about what the circuit does, right? Mm-hmm. How this could operate, mm-hmm. and um, what is interesting about this. On the one now, we also know that that all the data we have is actually only describing a tiny fraction of that system, mm-hmm. right? So, what's the rest of the cerebellum actually doing? Well, a large part of the cerebellum will control movements that are in a certain way similar to eyelid. The, mm-hmm. uh, it will control various muscles like leg withdrawal or finger movements mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Uh, some parts of the cerebellum will control the forebrain. You have a huge part of the, of, of the cerebellum projecting to the forebrain. Uh, and what it does there we don't know, but presumably, at least to some extent, what it does is it changes the, uh, uh, the excitability of pyramidal cells controlling movements so mm-hmm. that, for instance, if you... Uh, if you make an error when you try to reach something, 
the cerebellum can learn to correct your movements and, and exciting mm-hmm. a little bit more those muscles that would tend to move your arm mm-hmm. in a certain direction mm-hmm. and so on. So that is one thing that that's happening. Uh, you have all the responses of the this, your system of balance that the cerebellum controls. Mm-hmm. It could operate in a way that's similar to eye-blink conditioning, but my guess is that there are significant differences. Mm. But now, I re- a few years ago, you also proposed that these kinds of learning systems could actually underlie our ability to simulate, right? To support internal simulation. Or Because now in your examples, you seem to emphasize very, stro- very strongly the motor aspect of this. Yes, but my view of internal simulation is that it's it's very similar to actual motions, just that uh-huh. you turn off the output signals from, uh-huh, from right. the, the uh, primary motor cortex. And for all we know, it could well be the cerebellum that is doing it. Mm-hmm. It could be the cerebellum that turns off or prevents movement from coming out. We normally think of the cerebellum as producing signals to excite the motor neurons in, in the mm-hmm. motor cortex, but it could just as well be the opposite. They could very well be there in order to inhibit or stop movements mm-hmm. that, that could be dangerous to you. Right. So just as the cerebellum can produce a movement of the eyelid in anticipation of something that might be, be harmful, like an air puff or an insect coming mm-hmm. into your eyes or something, it could very well also project to to stop or prevent movements that might be harmful. For instance, you were walking, you are approaching something that is dangerous, you should stop walking before you, you fall off a mm-hmm. cliff or, or something. Maybe the cerebellum is producing an, uh, a signal that will enable you to stop the ongoing movement before something dangerous happens. Mm-hmm. And the cerebellum is very good at it because it's so well-timed and it's very fast compared right. to these signals coming from, let's say, the visual cortex mm-hmm. to the fore, to the forebrain. It's very, very slow. And you need, for quick adaptation, anticipating dangerous uh, mm-hmm. events. You need a fast system and the cerebellum right. is good mm-hmm. at that. But now, do you believe that this um, that this also plays a role in, let's say, conscious states or conscious processing, or do do you see this this kind of simulation that you describe occurring in the in the cerebellum or being supported by cerebellar processing, also feeding back into conscious states, or do you really see those as completely distinct? I don't think that the cerebellum in itself could be conscious, mm-hmm. uh, but I do think that the the, the cerebellum is an integral part of what is going on in the cerebral cortex. And I think that consciousness has to do... Well, consciousness is, is a term that covers too many different things. But mm-hmm. if, in my view, the, the most cru- critical part of consciousness is the fact that we have an inner reality that we can perform movements and see things and hear things internally in the brain mm-hmm. without connection to the external world. And that, that is what I mean by simulation. Mm-hmm. So the cerebellum would play the same role in simulated movements as it does in overt movements. Mm-hmm. And it would generate anticipated movements even if they are not, uh, and it would stop uh, uh, continuation of a movement that's just incipient and you just start start doing. The cerebellum could, could prevent that from, from occurring. 
And by doing that, it will always modulate the the uh, the internal simulation. It will also, in that sense, modulate what's going on in your inner reality mm-hmm. and, if you want, in your consciousness. Okay, but then it's more in, um, an, uh, let's say, an assistive function that then presents yes. this information yeah, to that. the conscious yeah. scene. It's not mm-hmm. really directly, uh, let's say... Um, it's not directly carrying that conscious scene. No, it's not. But it, it's, it, it has a particular kind of importance because one of the important aspects of consciousness is your ability to anticipate what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and you are aware of something might be dangerous. If I do this, then that mm-hmm. will happen. This is something you're always aware of and it's a very important part, uh, a very right. important part of the function of consciousness, I think. Mm-hmm. And the cerebellum is very good at anticipation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I think that the input from the cerebellum to the frontal cortex is very important for, for, right. for consciousness. But I could argue that also unconscious functions are have predictive components to them. Oh, absolutely, right? absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, when you, I don't know if you've ever experienced being subjected to eye blink conditioning, but when you, if you do, mm-hmm. you will notice how surprised you are when you blink. Okay. It's uh-huh. not it it's not as if you're aware that that oh I hear the tone mm-hmm. soon there will be an air puff I'd better blink so that I I avoid the air puff. It's actually when you notice the, the movement you're you're really surprised. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing happens when you learn let's say to play the piano or or a, uh, any musical instrument that that you you train and then suddenly you reach a point where your fingers move by themselves. You're not really, you don't feel that you are moving the fingers. Mm-hmm. You feel as if they are doing it themselves uh, because of an unconscious process. And what has happened is that the cerebellum has taken over and is doing right, it. Right, exactly. But so, another, so now that we solved the puzzle of consciousness, let, let, let's try another one, which, which I find very, very intriguing with respect to the cerebellum, which is the one of causality, because, which actually you also studied prior to entering into neuroscience. Yes, I worked in philosophy for a few years right. before. Yes. And, and so what's interesting there is that in, in the domain of conditioning, we have this, this debate between contingency and contiguity being dominant in conditioning. That means either is it a specific order of events that matters, or is it just that events co-occur in space and time, right? So now, in some sense, you could argue that the cerebellum is actually wired up to be sensitive to a very specific order of events, mm. right? So that would be the contiguity view of, of conditioning. But I could also now make an argument. You could argue that from an evolutionary perspective, what is wired into this learning system is that causal relationships do exist out there in the world mm. because I have wired myself up to pick them up within a time frame of up to one second, mm. right? So, so do you feel that this wiring of the cerebellum from a sort of an evolutionary epistemological perspective tells us that causality is actually out there in the real world and that this is the way of the brain to deal with it. Well, you are now touching some extremely difficult questions. <laughs> I mean, this is... The, we, we are really entering a deep water... speculation, de- of course. Deep waters here. Uh, and I, I, I can't comment on, on, on everything you said here, but let me first say that the order, in any, kind, in any behavior, the order of different components of your behavior is very important. I mean, in, in language, it's very obvious that the, the order of words is extremely important for 
comprehensiveness of, of, of the message. Order can be achieved by a temporal code. If every component of your speech has a specific time, then order will be secondary. Mm-hmm. It will impose an order on it. Because if if the, fir- the, the, the first phonemes are, are generated early and the later phonemes are generated late, then the order of the phonemes becomes sort of a, a, an unavoidable consequence. But of course, it's also possible that the cerebellum, uh, and the cerebellum might be important for that, but it's also possible that the cerebellum imposes an order. And you can, you can imagine, for instance, either you have Let's say that you play a piano and you have you, you're moving a certain a certain finger in a, a certain number of times on a key, and each key press has a specific time on it. So you can imagine the Purkinje cell sending out controlling that muscle, sending out temporal signals to to press the key now and now and now mm-hmm. and now. But you could also imagine that you had a chain of responses. So the first response would cause the second response, mm-hmm. which causes the third response. Right. Uh, and that is a very different kind of phenomenon. And it, one of the differences is that in this case, you could scale up and down uh, the speed of the movement. So an interesting thing is that you can talk a little bit slower but the order of the various components of your speech will be the same. Mm-hmm. This is difficult to understand if you have timed signals coming all the time, uh, determining the exact time of each component. Um, it's much easier to understand it if you have a sequence of cause-effect relationship, as if one conditioned response mm-hmm. triggers a second conditioned response that right. triggers a third mm-hmm. one and so on. But what I was after was also to to look at just the anatomy of this system, right? Because it's it's very peculiar that you have these these widely divergent um, parallel fibers conveying states of the world and of mm. the brain itself, converging with these highly specific climbing fibers can really tell you something, let's say, intrinsically meaningful, right? Mm. Okay, now this was painful, mm. right? And it is already structured in a way to deal with time. Mm. Right, that something happens before something else, but they can co-occur. Mm. Right, so so isn't that one of the necessary conditions of a causal relationship? Or yes, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. So so this is yeah. why why I was wondering whether we could not argue that that really the cerebellum is really biased towards let's say picking up ca- causal relations, but in a very permissive fashion. Right, so it can also pick up illusory. I wouldn't necessarily say causal because okay. I because I think this would happen whether the re, whether the relationship is causal or a pseudo correlation mm-hmm. uh, from the point of view of the cerebellum it doesn't really matter what matters is that the air puff tends to follow the tone mm-hmm. even if the tone is not even if the air puff is not caused by the tone mm-hmm. so uh, but that's a force the, the in the lab right yeah yeah but it's <laughs> from from the, from the biological point of view, if you look at it from in sort of in functional terms, the important thing is that you have a predictive relationship, mm-hmm. which could be a pseudo-correlation that doesn't have to be causal. Mm-hmm. So the, my guess is the cerebellum would learn a non-causal correlation just as, as well mm-hmm. as a causal one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't really matter. Okay, the only thing I could then say in my defense is that, of course, given 
that the sympathetic office always learns to extinction, mm-hmm. right? It does with time zoom in, zoom in on truly causal relations because these will be the only ones that are persistent in an interaction with an environment. That's true, that's right? true. And this is what is, yeah, and this is what often happens with pseudo-correlations. They break down eventually. Right, exactly. Uh, because they are, mm-hmm. because they're not causal, it's possible to interfere with them in a different way. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So now that we also solved the causality problem, that's, that's <laughs> wonderful, Jerry, we're making great progress yeah. here. So <laughs> let, let, let's finish up with... Um, with my, my last two questions. So look, you're, you're in the business for, for a long time, 25 years, working your way through the cerebellum. Uh, and I think we, we made amazing progress understanding cerebellum. Um, also, if you have farmed out to, to issues in, in consciousness. Um, so with, with based on your experience and, and, and your knowledge, what, what would be Jerry's law in our study of the brain? Perkindia cells learn temporary relationships, not only changing strength of synapses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's my punchline. Mm-hmm. All right. And then if I'm going to visit you five years from now at Lund mm-hmm. and I'm going to say, okay, Jerry, you made the prediction five years ago and I want to see what happened with it. Mm-hmm. What's the one prediction you would like to sort of commit yourself to today? That is very difficult to say because I can see before me a lot of some very, very interesting avenues of research. You have to give me one prediction. But I don't know what they will what they will, will generate. But mm-hmm. I suppose we will have, I, I can tell you what I think we will have learned. Mm-hmm. We will have learned something about the, the molecular underpinnings of learning a temperate relationship. Uh, so I think we will have gone much deeper into receptor physiology and second messenger systems mm-hmm. and so on in the Purkinje cells. But there are also a number of, of very difficult and uh, at the moment unsolved problems about how the cerebellum interacts with the cerebral cortex. Mm-hmm. And if you take one very nice example, prism adaptation, if you wear prisms, that displace the outside world laterally. Mm-hmm. Then if you try to point to a certain uh, point at a certain object, there will be an error. You will point uh, mm-hmm. to the side of that object. And pretty soon, if you train to do pointing, wearing these goggles with displace the outside world, you can fairly quickly adapt to it and you can point in the right mm-hmm. direction. The same thing happens if you have prisms that turn the world upside down. Mm-hmm. You adapt to that also sure. pretty pretty fast. Now, this is believed to be done by the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. And given what we now believe about learning in the cerebellum, it means that Purkinje cells controlling your point, the muscles that, that, that point, uh, point your arm and finger, those Purkinje cells will send some kind of corrective signals up to the motor cortex. Now, how do these Purkinje cells learn mm-hmm. to do that? They would need a, a climbing fiber signals to change their responses. And where do the climbing fiber signals come from? What triggers the learning is the mismatch between mm-hmm. the intended movement and the actual movement. You, you're, you're pointing not where you intended. There's nothing wrong in pointing in certain mm-hmm. direction. It's wrong only when you intend to point at something else. So there must be some way for the brain to detect a mismatch between what you intend and what you actually do. And that mismatch has to generate, uh, uh, activate the inferior olive so that you get a climbing fiber signal mm-hmm. in the cerebellum. 
this is extremely intriguing mm. and we just don't know we don't even know how the intended movement is encoded we mm. don't know really what that means uh, and how do we detect the mismatch where mm. does that occur and it seems to me that this will if you can answer those questions you would have gone a very long way mm. to understanding how the cerebellum interacts with the forebrain because as you know the cerebellum takes part in all your movement and probably also in your cognitive function when you just simulate movement but but it it, it takes part in all of it it, it fine tunes the amplitude the precision the timing and so on but it in order to learn it it will have to to receive climbing fiber input not only when you do something painful but also when you do something that you didn't intend to do mm-hmm. and how is that signal being generated right. and this is something that i believe we will know perhaps not in five years but in ten years that's great well jerry heslow thank you very much for this conversation thank you it's very nice to do. <laughs>